Thank you, Zach, for reading our scripture. We're glad that you're here tonight. We've got a lot of folks that are away tonight, and so uh, we're glad that you're here. And hopefully and prayerfully, our worship will benefit all of us who are present and also bring honor and glory to God. We are going to be talking about worship tonight. We've been looking the last several Sunday nights at the New Testament church, and tonight, a very simplistic lesson as it relates to the worship of the New Testament church. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 4 in just a moment or two. Before we do so, I do want to express appreciation to those of you who are visiting. As always, we invite you to come back and be with us. We're very grateful for your presence tonight. We're very thankful for the number of visitors that come our way from week to week. We had a lot of visitors this morning. We had a lot of our own members away. And so it's our prayer that if you're traveling, you'll have a safe journey to your destination and that our members will find their way back safely in the next day or so. Let's look at John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, we have a conversation that took place between Jesus and a woman of Samaria. And during the course of their conversation, attention was given to worship. And Jesus made some statements about worship that I think are helpful for us as we contemplate the worship of the New Testament church. And I want to begin by saying one of the things that ought to be noticeable by any who visit the services of the church is the simplicity of our worship service. There's nothing lavish or ornate, but rather it's just a very simplistic worship style and of course, we're striving to do things decently and in order. And to the best of our ability, we're trying to do it in accordance with the will of God. And so let me just call attention to what Jesus said in John chapter 4. In verse 23, Jesus said, The hour is coming, and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There are a lot of things that could be said about this verse, and I want to really just call attention to, to what I would say three very primary fundamental points about worship as it relates to the New Testament church. First thing I want to call attention to is our aim in worship. Again, Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him, the audience in our worship would be God. Sometimes I, I think we have the idea that when we sit in the pew that we are the audience. But really, as we think about the focal point, the aim of worship, God is the one that we are directing our worship toward. The word worship literally means to kiss towards. And the idea is that we are paying God the homage, the respect, the adoration that he is due. Whenever we come to worship, we ought to see God as Isaiah saw him many, many centuries ago. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah said he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, and then he said he saw him high and lifted up. That's how we ought to see God. To think about God sitting upon his throne, 
high and lifted up. God is the audience, the aim of our worship. And as we come to worship every first day of the week, to remember that we are coming into the presence of Almighty God, to remember that our worship is directed toward Him. We live in a day and time in which a lot of worship has changed in the minds of those who would be identified as worshipers. And sadly, sometimes our worship becomes man-centered rather than God-centered. And I think that there are natural byproducts to our worship. You and I, we derive a lot of benefits and blessings from worship, but ultimately, the aim of worship is God. We're focusing upon Him. And we're giving Him that which He is rightfully due. I think about the words of the psalmist in Psalm 89 in verse 7. Or rather in Psalm 95. When the psalmist said, Oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. That really is a beautiful picture of worship, isn't it? Bowing in the presence of Almighty God. I would submit to you that God wants our worship, doesn't he? To think that there is a God in heaven who would yearn for us, his creation, to bow in his presence and to give him the glory, the adoration, the praise that he is rightfully due. I would add to that the fact that he is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of all of all of the adoration and praise that we can render to him. In the book of Revelation in chapter 4, there's a beautiful picture of God sitting upon his throne. In chapter 4, you have a picture of the throne room of God. In chapter 5, the throne room of the Lamb is revealed. But in chapter 4, we read about those 24 creatures who cast their crowns before the throne. And they cry out to the Lord, Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will all things exist and were created. So God is worthy of the adoration, the homage that we pay him. And aren't you glad to be able to come into the presence of God? So I think about our aim in worship, but then there's a second thing I want to call attention to, and that is our attitude in worship. Listen again to what Jesus said. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit, that is, with the right attitude. The mind has to be engaged in worship. You know, sometimes if we're not careful, we can come into worship and it may be a very mechanical way we go through the various acts of worship. But really what, what Jesus is saying here is that the mind, in order to be pleasing to the Father, must be engaged in worship. So you might ask the question, well, how so? Let me just illustrate it like this. Every first day of the week, we partake of the Lord's Supper. That's one of the acts of worship. And do you remember when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, that memorial feast? When he took the bread, he gave thanks. 
And that bread, of course, representing his body that would be given on Calvary. And with regard to those who would partake of that bread, he said, this do in remembrance of me. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, there is the engagement of the mind in the various acts of worship. When we partake of the bread, we're reflecting on the body that was given for us on Calvary. And you remember Peter said that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. That we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness. So every first day of the week, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, our minds go back to Calvary. Retrospectively, we're recalling the events that occurred just outside the walls of Jerusalem. Golgotha. The body that was given for us. And then we partake of that cup. And Jesus said that cup signifies the new covenant, that is, the blood that was shed for the remission of sins for people of all ages. And he said with regard to the cup that we are to partake of it in memory of him. So again, when we partake of the cup, our minds go back to Calvary. We reflect upon the shed blood of Jesus. The blood that Peter identifies as precious. He said, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. And to remember that it took the blood of Jesus to wash away all of our sins. I mean, think about when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And he said, in whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So every first day of the week, as we partake of the cup, as we drink the fruit of the vine, we're calling to mind the death of Jesus, the blood that was shed for our sins. So that requires mental activity. Now, we go retrospectively back to the cross, but then introspectively, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but let a man examine himself. We examine our lives in light of that great sacrifice made for us on Calvary. What does that require? It requires my mind being involved in that very act of worship with regard to prayer. Isaiah led us just a moment ago. Isaiah was leading our thoughts in prayer, but we're praying with him. He is leading our thoughts, but we're praying with him. The mind is involved in that act of worship, isn't it? When we study from the Word of God, and as we look at the Scriptures and we think about what God has revealed in His Word, we're learning, we're being edified, we're being challenged, but it involves the mind. Sometimes if we're not careful, the mind can wander. And I would be the first to admit that it's easy to be distracted in worship. So that's why it, it requires focus. And that's what Jesus is saying. When we come to worship, we've got to have our mind right, our attitude, our thoughts. How many times have you heard people pray that, we might be able to dismiss the cares of the world 
so that we can focus on spiritual things. You know, if you go back and look at the Old Covenant, you remember God said to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Sabbath day was given by God for the purpose of calling the children of Israel's minds on spiritual things. In other words, it gave them one day in the week to think about spiritual things. Under the New Covenant, we observe the Lord's Day. And every first day of the week, we have the opportunity to set aside the cares of the world and to accentuate spiritual things, which would really be in line with what Paul taught in Colossians chapter 3 when he said, if you've been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, set your affections on things above, not on things upon this earth. Worship affords that, that opportunity to all of us. So not only must the mind be engaged, but then I think about the, the mental emotions that come with our worship to God. Worship, when the very nature of worship, acts of reverence paid to deity. And there's a sense in which the human emotions are involved in worshiping God. First and foremost, to remember the reverence, the decorum that ought to accompany our worship. We're not at a ball game. We're not at a circus. But rather, we're in the presence of God. And those emotions that are evoked ought to be that we're before a holy God. Back in Exodus chapter 3, you remember when God called upon Moses? He told him to remove his shoes. He said, the ground where you're standing is holy ground. Was God saying that the ground upon which Moses was standing was literally holy ground? I don't think that's what he was saying. But rather, I think what he was trying to convey to Moses was simply this. You're in the presence of a holy God. So when we come together for the purpose of worshiping, we're in the presence of a holy God. And so that demands our respect, our reverence. Psalm 89, in verse 7, the psalmist said, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence by all them that are about him. To remember that when we come together on the first day of the week that we are in the presence of the one who created us, the one who sustains us, and the one who redeemed us. The greatness of God. And to stand in awe of our creator and to recognize that he is worthy of our worship. I think there's a second thing as we think about our emotions that is worship affords us the opportunity to reflect in Isaiah chapter 6 you remember when Isaiah saw as I said a moment ago the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and those angelic beings that were in the presence of God as they cried out holy 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 those angelic beings recognizing the holiness of God Isaiah, of course, 
is talking about how he saw God high and lifted up. And he wrote about the holiness of God. But when he saw God, what was his response? Do you remember? He said, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. It caused reflection. And I think when we come together on the first day of the week as we worship God, to reflect upon His greatness, His, His love for us, the tremendous mercy that He has showered upon us as members of the human family, to reflect upon the fact that there is a God in heaven. I think about the words of the psalmist in Psalm 8. Do you remember when the psalmist asked the question centuries ago, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? That there is a God in heaven who in his great love devised a plan to redeem us. The psalmist in Psalm 103 said he remembers our frame. He knows that we're dust. God made us in his own image and likeness. And before God ever placed man on this sphere that we call the earth, God had a plan in place to redeem us. The church exists according to his eternal purpose. And so to reflect upon the eternal wisdom of God, his greatness, his infinite wisdom and understanding. Do you remember the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11? When he said, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? That's the God that we serve. And so we're in the presence of God and we can reflect upon, we can reflect upon his greatness and his worthiness. And when we come to, when we come to worship, there ought to be a connection between us and God. I mentioned a moment ago, as we study God's Word together, doesn't it afford us the opportunity to look at our lives in light of what God's Word says? Do you remember James said, be doers of the Word and not hearers only? When we come to worship, we're coming to give, yes, but we also garner a lot, don't we? Don't we receive many, many blessings? Sometimes those blessings are that we take what God has said, we evaluate our lives, and then if we need to make changes, we make those changes. But are there not times when we come to worship, our hearts are heavy, we're hurting, we're burdened, we feel as if we're about to give up, and yet when we come to worship, we're strengthened and built up, revived, so to speak. As the psalmist said, revive us again. And so worship affords us those opportunities. And then as I think about the emotions, one of the emotions that we ought, that we ought to evoke in coming together every first day of the week ought to be a spirit of joy. We ought to rejoice that we're in the presence of God. When we sing to God, to praise Him, to give Him that adoration that He is due, but to rejoice in all of His blessings and all of His benefits, 
Again, think for a moment about how sometimes we come to worship and we just go through the mechanics of worship. We go through the acts of worship and we really, we really fail to appreciate that moment in time that we're here to rejoice, that we're here to give God gratitude for what he has done on our behalf. You think about how joyful we ought to be in the presence of the Lord. The psalmist said, make a joyful noise before the Lord. Do you remember that back in Psalm 100? Serve the Lord with gladness. Shouldn't we be joyful when we come into his presence? When we sing, when we study, when we give? As we engage in these acts of worship, and you ask the question, okay, how blessed am I? Do you remember in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus said, Rejoice, why? Because your names are written in heaven. Can we not rejoice because we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ? That we are forgiven people. That we are in fellowship with God. That we have a great brotherhood. Can we not rejoice that our names, because we've obeyed the gospel and come in contact with the blood of Christ, can't we rejoice that our names have been registered in heaven, as the Hebrew writer talked about in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. Can we not rejoice that there is a God in heaven who will hear our prayers? When Isaiah led us a moment ago to realize that we are before the very throne of God and that there is a God in heaven who delights in our prayers, as Solomon wrote in, in Proverbs chapter 15, that God has encouraged us to draw boldly before his throne. And you think about the fact that there is a God who is your creator and he invites you to come before his throne to worship him. He's inviting all of us. We can do it individually. We can do it corporately. We do it every first day of the week. It's a blessing, isn't it? We ought to leave here joyful. Joyful because not only have we been in the presence of God, but because we have been so blessed by God. Do you think it's possible sometimes that, whether it be how we view Christianity, how we view our worship, how we view our study, that rather than looking at life optimistically and joyfully and gratefully, we view life cynically, pessimistically? Haven't we been blessed? And out of those blessings, shouldn't we desire to worship God and to express unto Him our gratefulness? When Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, he was in prison, wasn't he? And in prison, Paul said, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. And you can see Paul practicing that. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas had been imprisoned in Philippi, they were beaten, their feet were fastened in stocks. And the Bible says at midnight, what were they doing? They were worshiping God, weren't they? Praying and singing praises to God. So sometimes worship can afford us the opportunity, the privilege to redirect our thinking. 
to look at life differently, to look at life gratefully, to look at life from the vantage point of how blessed we are, how much we have and not what we don't have or how little we do have. So as we engage in worship, our emotions are our emotions are a part of that. Not superficial emotion, but we're in tune with everything that's taking place. Now there's a, another aspect of our worship. We talk about our aim in worship, our attitude in worship, and then our authority in worship. Our authority, of course, would be God's word, wouldn't it? Listen again to what Jesus said. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is the one who regulates our worship. In other words, God is the one that defines how we're to worship him. And he regulates that. And if you look at, if you look at the New Testament, and you think about God has given, for example, a pattern for the, government of the, for the government of the church. In other words, the universal church, one head, one body. The local church, we talk about elders and deacons and members and evangelists, etc. And then there is a pattern for how we become members of the body of Christ, how we Enjoy fellowship with God. Romans chapter 6. God be thanked that though you were servants of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form, that pattern of doctrine. So there's a pattern that we follow with regard to the church, the government of the church, the work of the church, our admission into the church. So it shouldn't seem strange that there's a pattern for how we worship God. In other words, there are certain acts that we engage in every first day of the week, those acts of worship governed by the authority of Christ. Now in Matthew chapter 28, a passage we're all familiar with, Jesus said, all authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And you remember God the Father spoke while Jesus was on that mountaintop as he was transfigured in the presence of Peter, James, and John. And God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he said, hear him. So whatever, whatever the Lord says, that's what we want to make sure that we're attuned to. And then Paul said in Colossians 3 that whatever we do in word or deed, we're to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we do it by his authority. So as we engage in the various acts of worship, singing and praying, and giving, engaging in the Lord's Supper. As we engage in these various acts of worship, we do those, we engage in those acts of worship because that's what God has specified. And I would remind us of this. I said a moment ago that in our day and time, a lot of worship has been misconstrued. And I think in many cases, worship has become man-centered rather than God-centered. When you look at the scriptures, 
nowhere has God ever given man the latitude to decide how he or she's going to worship him. God's the one that has designed our worship. And so in a very simplistic way, we engage in these acts of worship. We do so to honor God, but there are direct benefits to us, are there not? Do you remember in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, when the writer talked about how some were forsaking the assembling together? And he said one of the byproducts of coming together every first day of the week is that we might be edified or built up in the faith. When we engage from the heart in songs that are directed to God, we're teaching one another. Yes, there's a vertical sense of our praise, but horizontally we're teaching one another, are we not? So when we engage in these acts of worship, are we not the beneficiary, beneficiaries of these acts? Yes. So we're blessed to be a part of the worship every first day of the week. I'd like for us to look in more detail at the various acts of worship that we engage in because I think that it helps us to better appreciate our coming together and the purpose behind engaging in these various acts of worship. I mentioned a moment ago the Lord's Supper. The Lord understood the importance of a memorial. And that's just one example. But I want us to look at the various acts in detail because I think it can help us better understand those acts of worship, but also help us better equip ourselves for worship. So I want you to be thinking in the next few days about those acts of worship. And think about how we are to approach God's throne in worship. And ask, we ought to ask ourselves, are we prepared? In other words, are we prepared mentally to come together and to worship God acceptably? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the privilege and the power of prayer. And we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to open your word, to study it. And we're grateful for this hour of worship. And Father, we pray that as we come to worship you, that we would see you high and lifted up. And that we would realize that you are worthy of our worship. And Father, we pray that you would bless each of us with a heart that desires to be in your presence. We ask, Father, that you would bless us this hour, bless us in our worship, bless us in our service to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Tonight, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you to come to Christ. What would you need to do to become a New Testament Christian? Well. It begins with faith. Faith that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God. I think about the words of Peter when asked about the identity of Jesus. When he said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you believe that? 
If you believe Jesus is the Son of God and you would be willing to turn from the world, all the attractions of the world through repentance, confess the name of Christ and then be immersed in water, the assurance is that all your sins will be washed away, Acts 22, 16. And the Bible tells us that when you do that, God puts you in His church, in His body. And you're a part of the redeemed, the cleansed, the saved, according to Ephesians 5, 23. If you're here tonight and maybe you need the prayers of the church, maybe you're struggling in life, it might be that you're burdened, you're hurting, and as a family, we can pray with you and for you. It might also be the case that you're here tonight, maybe your life's not what it ought to be, and you'd like to rededicate your life to the Lord. You'd like God to forgive you of anything amiss in your life so that you'd be back in fellowship with Him. Let us pray with you and for you as we stand and sing.